Hey everybody, so great to be with you this morning. My name is Jared and I'm excited to be able to close out this Esther series with you. Before we jump into the text, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you had a vision of something you were going to do? Maybe it was going on a vacation or maybe it was an anniversary or just what a lazy Saturday morning would look like. And you had a vision, right? You had a, a thing in your mind. You were picturing what it was going to look like and you were imagining in it. And then somebody else had a very different vision and your visions collided. I remember when this happened to me, uh, one of the most prominent times this happened to me in my life is uh, we, we had our first child, Judah. He was about three months old and we were getting ready to go on vacation. And we were so exhausted because my son did not sleep through the night for two years. And so we were so exhausted, we were so looking forward to vacation. And, and I started to, in my mind, have this vision of what our vacation would look like. I remember uh, imagining that I would get to sleep in, I would get to rest, and I'd get to catch up and feel so rejuvenated and come back to work, like ready to, ready to go. And, and, and this vision started building and building and building as I anticipated this vacation. And my wife and I, we, we lived in Long Island, New York at the time, when we had to drive, on, drive to Vermont to visit my parents. And so we, we decided we're going to leave at 8 at night, drive through the night, because, again, he was a horrible driver, horrible sleeper. And we'll get in about 2 in the morning. And so we do that, and the drive's terrible. But the whole time I'm thinking to myself, vacation's going to be great. I have this vision, right, of what it's going to be. And we finally get there at 2 in the morning, and Judah's kind of restless. And by the time we get him down and get into bed, it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, man, that was terrible, but at least I know I'm on vacation. And then 6 o'clock comes around. And I remember hearing him cry in the crib next to us and, and waking up to being absolutely mortified and realizing that my vision for this vacation had come crashing down. I, I, I turn to my wife, and we still joke about it today. I turn to my wife, and, and it was in one of those uh, sleepy stupors that you've been in. She kind of starts to nudge me. You know, the spouses, we do this when we're really, really tired. You can't even say words, so you just start to, like, groan and, uh, you know, tell me to get up. And she starts nudging me and pushing me, and I'm looking over at him like, dude, are you serious? We've only been in bed for three hours. And, and I, I turn to my wife, and I said, babe, I'm on the edge and I don't know what's on the other side. It was this like, profound moment where I was so sleep deprived. And worst of all, the vision I had for this vacation came crashing down because I realized something that every parent knows. Once you have small children, vacations are no longer about rest. They are only about making experiences and moments to remember. They are not about rest. And in that moment, it was like my vision for this vacation totally came in contact with Judah's vision for this vacation, and you can imagine which vision won out. This idea of competing visions, right? And, and I think it's true not only of, uh, of silly things like vacations, but I actually think it's true of our, our lives. Believe it or not, you have a vision for your life. You have a vision for uh, how you're going to live your life, what matters in life, what things you're going to pursue, right? And, and not only do you have a vision, but all around you are competing visions, when you watch movies or TV shows, they have a vision for life. When you talk to your coworkers or your bosses, there's a vision for life. All around you are competing visions for how you should live your life. And the question is, what vision are you living? Now, you may think that doesn't matter, but I would, I would challenge you to say, if there's a God in this world who made you and me, and I think there is, he designed us for a purpose, which means he actually has a vision for our life. And so what vision we're living out 
should matter more to us than anything else. And there's a chance today that you may be sitting there, and there's a chance that you may be living a vision that is not the vision that God has designed for you. And I don't know about you, but that matters to me. And so this morning I want to encourage you as we look at the book of Esther, let's take a look at what vision we're living out. And maybe today God would speak to your heart and challenge you to take on a new one. I want to read to you in in the book of Esther, we're going to look at chapter 8. And as we close this series, I'm going to uh, read a couple of scriptures. If you're getting out your Bibles, we'll also have it up on the screen for you. But if you're ready, turn to someone who you're sitting next to or comment on the screen. Tell them, yeah, yeah, let's do this thing, all right? So book of Esther, chapter 8, I'm going to start at verse 1. Here's what it says. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. This morning, as we look at this text, I want to share with you two competing visions. We're going to look at the vision of Haman and the vision of Esther. So first thing, let's dive into the vision of Haman. Now, if you've not been watching the whole series, I want to encourage you to go back. But if you haven't, we're going to refresh the story a little bit. Or maybe you have, but it's good to find out how did we get to this point in the story. So if you remember, uh, we're introduced to this king named King Xerxes. He's the king of this Persian empire, and he's kind of a crazy guy. And through a series of events, he decides he needs a new wife. And uh, during this pursuit, which lasts a couple of years, we're introduced to Esther. And Esther is a Jew. She's an orphan. She's a refugee. uh, And she's raised by this guy named Mordecai, who's a family member, and he becomes like a father to her. And we find out that Mordecai and Esther are Jewish, although nobody knows about it. And so Esther ends up being selected by King Xerxes to be uh, his next queen. And so she's in the palace, and, and her life has really kind of turned around. And during that time, we're introduced to another character whose name is Haman. And Haman is kind of this noble, he's this evil guy in, in the story, and he ends up being elevated to the number two position in the kingdom. And uh, King Xerxes says everybody's got to honor him, and so as Haman's entering the kingdom, everyone's bowing down and they're honoring him, except for Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to do it. And we begin to see Haman's reaction. As everyone's looking around, they're going, Haman, are you seeing this guy disrespect you? He's not bowing down. He's not honoring you the way that you should. Are you seeing this? And Haman becomes so furious and angry that he decides he's not just going to kill Mordecai, but he's going to kill all the, Jew, the Jewish people in the land. And, and as the story unfolds, we start to reveal the vision that Haman has for his life, right? Haman goes on to the king and he devises this plan where he's going to get the king to sign a royal edict to on a certain day kill, allow all the enemies of the Jews to kill them and the Jews are not allowed to defend themselves. Now Haman's life, you start to see this man who is desperate, right? He's desperate for position. He's desperate for power. He's desperate for authority. And, and you can ask the question, why would he react so angrily towards Mordecai for not bowing down? And the answer is that all of Haman's life has been pursuing position, pursuing power. 
And he finally was at the number two position, and Mordecai comes in and refuses to bow down, and all that, more, all that Haman had worked for his entire life was now at risk. Haman, Haman's vision for his life was it was all about him. Right? The thing that mattered most with him and his family, he had to work and earn to try to gain significance, worth, and value. Another way to put it was he had to earn his identity. He had to find something that would give him value. And for Haman, that thing was power. It was prestige. It was position. And he was so desperate to have it that when somebody would threaten it like Mordecai, he would do everything and anything to destroy the threat. Now, uh, I, I remember when I read this for the first time, it's, it was easy. I remember thinking, like, this guy's crazy, right? And in fact, you, you may be hearing this story and going, Haman's a terrible dude. I can't believe he would do something like that. I certainly would never kill somebody or commit genocide, right? It's hard for us to relate to the story of Haman. But before you think that, I want to challenge you that there may be some of us, including myself, who at times in our life actually live out the same vision that Haman did. I remember uh, um, uh, one night we had some friends over to our house, and uh, my kids who, who are young were kind of acting up, and, and, and one of them was being extra disrespectful. And, and it wasn't just that they were being disrespectful, but they were doing it loud enough so that my friends who were downstairs, who were also parents, could hear. And, and so I, I went upstairs to their room, and I started doing it. Parents, you know this, or kids, if you have parents, you know this. I started doing, like, the parent super angry yell, the quiet yell. The yell where, like, you know that I'm angry, but I can't be so loud that the people downstairs hear me because I don't want them to think I'm crazy. But it's like, you're going to, you know, you start talking like that, you're like, you're going to get it later. Like, it was that type of anger, right? And, and I remember later on that night after the friends had left and kind of everyone was going to bed, I think, I'm like, why did I react that way? What about that moment made me so angry? Because parents, you know that there's, there's a difference between when your kid acts up at home when no one's there to see it versus when they act up in Target or Walmart, right? And I remember thinking, why did I get so angry? And as I started to think about it, what I realized was in that moment, what I hated most was not that my kid was disrespectful. It was that they threatened the perception that people had of me. I was worried that the friends I had downstairs would think I was a bad parent would think I, I, I couldn't control my kids, I wasn't a disciplinarian, I didn't have respect and honor. I was worried about what they thought, I was worried about my position of power within my own family, and when my kids were disrespecting me publicly, it was a threat to the things that I thought gave me worth and value. I was living out the Haman vision, that my life was about pursuing things that would validate my existence, give me a sense of worth and value, and a sense of identity. Now, some of you may be like Haman. Maybe for you it is, it is found through power and prestige. Maybe at work you're thinking, how can I climb the ladder? Right? How can I get into that position of authority and power? But maybe you're like, I'm not, I'm not really Haman. Maybe for you it's, it's approval. Maybe you're desperate for people to like you. You're desperate for people to think you're great. And you'll do anything to get their reputation of, uh, uh, up. And, and if anyone threatens that reputation, you'll do anything to maintain it, right? Maybe for you it's comfort. Maybe you want to fill your life with stuff and things and toys and money and, and the worst thing uh, could be to be in pain or be in discomfort. And, and so for you, you'll do anything to make sure you have enough things in life. Or maybe for you it's security. It's that sense of the bigger the number my bank account is, the better I feel. Or the more in control of the situation, the better I feel. And I'll do anything to defend it. See, the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, 
most of us, oftentimes in our life, are living out a Haman vision. It's a vision that's not concerned for anybody beyond ourselves and our own family. It's not worried about the world. It's not worried about what's happening around us, the hurt, the pain, the suffering. It's a vision that is consumed with elevating ourselves to a position where we can feel worth and value. It's the Haman vision. So Haman goes on and he gets the king to sign this, sign this edict and, and they cast lots. It's this random kind of like rolling of the dice to determine which day the enemies of the Jews are going to get to kill the Jews. And the story goes that Mordecai hears about this and he's so upset that he reaches out to Queen Esther and he says, you've got to do something, you've got to step in. And so Queen Esther decides to risk everything that she has, including her own life, and she goes to the king. And of course, at that time, you know that you couldn't just go into the king's presence without being invited. And so she risked her life, and sure enough, though, the king extended his gold scepter, spared her life, and allowed her to come in. And she, through a series of events, ends up exposing this plot that Haman had devised to kill both her, because she was Jewish, and her entire people. And we come to chapter 8 where King Xerxes realizes this and in this great reversal of events he now kills Haman, gives all of Haman's stuff to Queen Esther. Mordecai is now promoted to this level of leadership and authority in the kingdom and for Esther and for Mordecai there's this great reversal of events in their life and now everything for them personally is sitting amazing, right? Like they have all the, all the power, all the authority. They have more wealth than they had before. They have position. Uh, the, uh, Esther's been spared by the king. Everything is looking great for them. It's an amazing moment. And then we come to, verse, to chapter 8 and verse 3. And I think this is such a pivotal moment in the story. It would have been so easy for Esther to live out the vision that Haman had which is I'm going to look out for me and my family and I'm going to protect the things that I have that give me worth and value. How easy would it have been for Esther to forget her people in this very moment? But instead, what we see in verse 3, it says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. So Esther, in this moment, decides that although she has everything a person could want to give them a sense of worth and value, unlike Haman, she's going to risk all of it in order to plead for the king to spare her people. Esther had a different vision. It was a vision that involved more than just her own life and her own family. It was a vision that recognized the hurt and the need and the brokenness of the people around her. It was a vision that recognized that there was a whole world around her, that God was doing something. He had a plan and he was working. And the question is, how do we know this, right? How, how does Esther, why does Esther live a different vision than Haman? And I think the answer is given in chapter 9, where we see this idea of a celebration called Purim. And Purim was this celebration that was based on the very idea of the moments in life that seem like chance, right? These moments in life that seem like coincidence are actually not coincidence at all. They are God's providence at work, God's sovereignty at work, God living out and making his plan happen in his people's lives. 
And, and that, tr- that story becomes more true because a- as the story goes on, Esther tells the king and the king says, all right, here's what I'll do. I can't reverse my edict, but I'll put a new edict out that the Jews can defend themselves when attacked. And sure enough, we see this kind of divine, uh, this divine victory given to the Jews where they overcome all of their enemies throughout the entire region of Persia. And it's this amazing thing. And it culminates now with this ceremony celebrating this fact. That moments in life that seem like God is absent, he's not. God is working. God is moving. And God is sovereign. And I think Esther understood, Esther understood this. She understood this fact. That in the moments of life when you're at your lowest, God is still there. When Mordecai was outside the gate and he had nothing. And his life was at risk and all of his people looked like they were going to die. God was still working. In the moments that seem like coincidence and seem like there is no hope and there's no way to break through, God is still working. And, and if, you're, if you're today and you're going through a challenging time with corona and maybe you've lost your job, maybe finances are challenged, maybe relationships at home are falling apart, you can know today, despite how it feels, that God is still working. Despite what the circumstances look like, God is still working. He's not abandoned you and he's not forgotten about you. But the other thing that this celebration reminds our hearts of and that Esther, I think, understood is God is working when you're in the low places, but he's also working when you're in the high places. See, Esther had moved from an orphan who was a refugee to now being the queen who had tremendous favor. Mordecai had been working from being essentially nothing to being one of the most trusted number twos in the entire kingdom, only under the king. But they understood that their position, how they got there, was from God. They, they realized that it wasn't their hard work. It wasn't, it wasn't their talent or their ability. It wasn't all the stuff that they did. Their position of authority, the position that they had been given, the, the influence that was around them had been given to them by God for such a time as this to do something with, to accomplish his plan and purpose. God had put them where he had put them to be a part of his plan of rescuing his people. And Esther understood this, right? She realized this. I, I'm not here on my own volition. I'm here because of God. And so today, if things are going great in your life, and maybe if you're in a great position, it's very easy to take all the credit for ourselves and to think, well, if other people had made better decisions, maybe right now if they had had more in their savings like I did, and they had done this and that and that, and it's easy to take credit and to view our position as our own, as something we have done and we have created, when in reality, what Esther knew and what this story tells us is that all we have is from God. Whether we're in the low places or in the high places, God wants to use us to be a part of his plan of rescuing and redeeming his people. That's the story of Esther. That's the vision of Esther. So today what that means for you and I is no matter where we're at, we have to assess what vision we're living out. And maybe for us right now, we're living a vision that is more like Haman's, that is consumed with our own life. It's consumed with what's happening to us. It's consumed with our own problems and our own family. And we're unaware of the bigger reality that the creator of the universe is at work and he's doing something and he wants us to be a part of it. See, God wants to move our hearts from a Haman vision to an Esther vision, which says, my life is yours. No matter what I have to sacrifice, no matter what I have to give up, it's not about what I can get for me. It's about what I can give for you. And you may be sitting there and saying, man, that seems hard. 
In fact, that seems impossible. And, and, and you may be right. You are right. It is hard. How do we do it? See, the beauty of this story is Esther and Mordecai are not meant to be the heroes. In fact, a lot of scholars say there's a lot of stuff that they may have done wrong. They're not meant to be the heroes of the story. In fact, they're meant to point us to the true hero, to a better hero. Jesus left all that he deserved, was born into poverty, into persecution, right? Jesus left uh, perfect approval, perfect affection. He, he, he had the world as his footstool, and yet he left it to be born as a baby, born in a manger, born into poverty, born into death and persecution. And then he goes and lives this perfect life, the life that you and I should live but don't. The surrounded by Haman, surrounded by people who wanted to destroy him and want to take him. And Jesus never, ever lives for himself. Never, ever uh, works for what he deserves or takes for what is owed to him. Instead, he lives a selfless life for those around him. And eventually, he goes to the cross. And on the cross, he takes on the penalty that Haman deserves. He takes on the penalty that you and I, because our hearts are so often like Haman's, that you and I deserve for our sin, our brokenness, all the times that we're selfish, that we live for ourselves. Jesus on the cross takes that penalty that we deserve onto himself, and he imparts onto us the identity that we could never earn. Jesus rescued and redeemed us. And now in that moment, when we think about the cross, it reveals to us, not only is our identity secured, but it reveals to us that the creator of the world has a mission. He has a plan to bring heaven to earth, to rescue and redeem all people, to bring hope to those who are hopeless, to bring joy to those who are broken. And he's invited you and I to be a part of it. Your life matters more than just what we can get for ourselves. Your life matters because God has invited you to join in his mission. The question for us is, what vision of life do we want to live out? One for ourselves or one for him? And my prayer today is that the more beautiful Jesus becomes to you, the more beautiful his mission will become. Would you join me as we uh, close in a song and remind our hearts of how awesome Jesus really is?